0: Good evening and thank you for tuning in to York's Political Mashup. This is the second episode and uh, we I think it is only fitting to start off by uh, I'm sure the other guests uh, will join me in expressing our condolences to Sir Captain Thomas More's family given his recent uh, tragic death. Um, before we before we start talking about the wider topics, uh, I'll, I'll allow each... Uh, representative to just say a few words uh we have ben uh ben french from the labor party would you like to say hello ben uh hello we have joe joining us once again from the conservative party at york hi and we have james from the lib dems
1: love to be here uh
0: so i'm just going to allow each uh representative to just say uh just a few words a short uh contribution to sir captain uh, thomas and then we will get on with the the actual main topics of conversation so ben would you like to start off and then joe and then james and we can then start discussing what we had planned
2: yeah um yeah well i think we're all we're all particularly uh, really sad to hear about um the death of tom Moore. i know a lot of friends um uh, have been hearing about it and yeah there's an enormous kind of uh, enormous sadness and really but what i think he's left behind is a really amazing legacy i think what we can really um really take pride in i think he really has come to symbolize the spirit of community we've seen over this lockdown um and his wonderful contribution to fundraising i think it was it something like in excess of something like 30 million 32 million um but no it's really really wonderful um and i'm sure his impact and his legacy of fundraising and community service i think i'm sure will have a a long-term impact in the uk um and yeah just his life and his wonderful um example um i think really um it's just it's just such a kind of um it's a really uh, great inspiration um for us all and the impact of what we can do when we come together because you know it was yeah it wasn't just him you know it was it was that engagement with the community and the way it inspired the nation um, in those fundraising efforts. Um, and also in just highlighting um, the wonderful NHS we have as well. Um, so, yeah, but no, it was a really, um, really sad to hear. And um, I'm sure we will send our condolences. Um, and, but yeah, it's important to note that this that, um he obviously he came to fame last year. Um, but yeah, behind that is a wonderful life of service um, and really a fantastic individual um, who we can all look up to.
0: Thank you, Ben. Um, would Joe, would you like to say a few words as well?
3: Yeah, I would really like to echo what Ben said. It's a, it's a great loss and uh, he's really kind of a representative of that kind of community spirit that we all kind of felt, especially in the first lockdown. And um, it, yeah, and behind that, behind even just... Uh, that is his kind of great service to this country, kind of, with his kind of wartime effort, and I uh, send my condolences to our family. And it's great to see that people, all across, from all walks of life, all across the political va- divide, you know, everyone is really kind of coming together to kind of mourn the sad loss, and it's it's really nice. So even in his death, he is kind of providing this community spirit. So it's, oh yeah, it's really sad to see, and that uh, I do send my condolences. And
1: finally, James. Yes, this is uh, definitely a mournful time for the country, and I'd concur with what the others said, and I'd also like to highlight uh, that the money he raised, the excess of £30 million, went towards NHS charities. I myself was a part of one once, I saw the transformative work that they do, needed now in hospitals more than ever, and they bring humanity to the proceedings, and I think Tom himself brought humanity to the lockdown, you saw... A strong community spirit, scenes that you hadn't seen in decades. And I really hope that we retain some of that and that we remember him when we do, when all this is over.
0: Okay, thank you. So, moving on from that somber note, we're now going to start off by talking about the easing of lockdown, uh, which seems very distant at this present moment, but the infection rates are dropping and the R rate has gone down. Um, and recently uh, the PM was questioned about how we would uh, go about easing the restrictions. And the PM said yesterday that a national p- approach going down the tiers in a national way might be better this time around. So let's start off with Ben. Ben, what do you think would be the best way to ease the present restrictions when suitable? Do you Would you favour going back to a tiered approach, or do you think that we should... there should be a more national way of easing the restrictions or do you think that the the end isn't in sight in 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 the sense that you think we should be locked down for a lot longer than the current likely date of March
2: well Ed I think the government needs to be uh, listening to the scientists particularly um, and being clear really clear about kind of the difficult decisions uh, that the country faces. and being really honest with the British public with that I don't think we've seen enough consultation Um, government. I think it's been far too secretive and not often, not always sharing the the vital information that people need. Um, I think yes, if if the scientists do endorse that, it's the best way. I think we do need to go back to a a tiered approach and we can't be afraid of shying away from some difficult decisions that do do need to be made. We all want hospitality to come back. We all want schools to come back. But we have to look at the R rate. We have to look at the needs Um, to save lives and the impact that must have but look I think if we're looking at kind of a tier system and I think that probably would be the best approach um, looking at the science I think we need to look far better far better last time at the regional inequalities and I think the social inequalities that the pandemic has brought rise to um, and I know um, Esther McVeigh currently in the government is heading up a task force looking at some of these social and geographic inequalities um, and I think that there needs to be far more work looking at this and the tier system, um, and looking at how this would impact it as well. But we do need to have far more support, um, and we need just just much more of this approach. And I think the government needs to be far more clear um, with the British public on where are we going, where is the roadmap to get out of lockdown, and once we can do that, then more people can have more confidence in the system, and and then a far more effective um, effective way out this lockdown as well but we need to look at the numbers and set proper criteria the government needs to be able to answer basic questions about this
0: when you say that you know if the government is in favor of going into um, a tiered approach and the scientists back it then that should be the way forward would you favor a tiered approach which was similar to the last one we had or do you think because what became very evident very quickly was that the the new tiered approach wasn't suitable for the, the the variant so do you think that a new tiered approach would work considering that we have now the south african variant and also the kent variant or do you or do you think that the, the, it can be adapted and tweaked so that a new tiered approach will work
2: um well yeah i think i think at the moment particularly we need to, we need to stay in a national lockdown i think questions about it's probably not for me to speculate, but looking at least a couple of months down the line, I would I would estimate. Um but yeah, I would say I think a, t- a tweaked approach where the government looks at the figures and looks at quick lock quick lock local lockdowns, quick targeting at hotspots. Um and particularly in consultation with local government and local mayors, local councils. We haven't seen that in the last lockdown. Um, I'm sure we'll know, um I think particularly was like say Greater Manchester and Andy Burnham there and a particularly poor um, communication and collaboration. Um, I think what we've seen the strength of cracking down with the South African variant is the cooperation with local councils. And I think what that that's what made that particularly effective.
0: OK, thank you, Ben. Let's go to James now. Uh, James, um, I mean, you've spoken in the past on the show about how it is, how our tiered system didn't really work very well. Um, And then, you know, there's now discussion of whether going into a tiered system is the best approach. Do you think there's an argument, James, for just remaining in lockdown until a sufficient number have been vaccinated beyond March?
1: I'm, as much as I'd like to say, so I'm honestly not sure if is. I was doing some quick uh, back of a napkin maths before, so obviously it might not be quite accurate, but uh, it'll be about, I think, six months uh, at the current rate we're vaccinating people before everyone's had their first dose, and maybe another four months on from that until everyone's had their second, and I think we can't reasonably lock down for that long, even six months over ten months, so restrictions will need to be eased. I think that should probably coincide with once we've got uh, significant enough numbers of vulnerable people. And also there are several thresholds that scientists use for determining herd immunity, which uh, should be looked at. Uh, But I think uh, what's important uh, when thinking about the tier system is that if you do it in this kind of big top down approach way, what you get is a lot of resentment i think we felt in a lot of places a lot of feeling that there isn't communication that people are being talked down to rather than talked to i think a local region-based system could work but what that would require is uh what that would require is the i suppose guts perhaps to be willing to actually enforce travel bans between tiered areas and i think The restrictions weren't really being enforced to a large degree uh, during the last, well, not lockdown, the last tier system, which I think is a major part of why it failed, why disease is still spread from one tier to the next. People are still traveling. Everything was still moving. You need to be willing to quarantine effectively to a certain extent areas that have had either high incidences of the disease or areas that have new variants of the disease.
0: OK, thank you, James. Uh, now let's uh, move on to Joe. Uh, Joe, so what, what would you say in terms of a national approach to easing the restrictions? It seems that both Ben and James have said, you know, there's going to come a point where we're going to have to move out of the lockdown, uh, considering the rate at which uh, vaccinations are taking place. It would be around the August sort of summertime uh, in terms of when everyone is being vaccinated. So what do you think about a tier approach i mean the pm didn't rule out there being regional differentiation he said there may be a an advantage still in some regional di- di- differentiation as well so what do you make of that jay
3: um i i, I think a tiered I, uh, yeah i'll be inclined to agree with the uh, the two of the guests that i think a tiered approach is probably the best approach for afterwards at least for the kind of Maybe over the summer, and then hopefully, by kind of when that 10 months is up, or when is the, the virus is down to negligible levels, then we can kind of fully open up and life can return to kind of somewhat normal. Uh, so, I think that's probably the best thing to do. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think that the government needs to be better at communica- communicating what thresholds there are. Because I know there was great uh, anger over things like Manchester. Where they were quite high, and I think that if there's like a certain, like if your R local R rate is estimated over a certain amount, so like say over one, for example, then you go into a higher tier. That might be yeah. You and know, certain tiers have certain kind of levels of R rate? That might make sense, or kind of, yeah, or kind of some kind of combination where and and it has to be very very obvious, of what. It, yeah of what kind of requires these tiers, because therefore people are more likely to kind of go on with it rather than the some, somewhat slightly scattergun approach that was kind of perceived last time.
0: Okay, and Joe, um, I mean, this is a good, good point to sort of move on to. The South African variant um, has been reported, and there's 105 cases in total that were picked up. Yesterday, but then now today, the Matt Hancock announced that there has also been cases of it in Liverpool and Bristol. Do you think that the government has been very efficient in setting up this surge testing, or is the South African variant the fact that it's actually managed to enter our population? Uh, a statement about a statement in in the sense that. The, the, it shouldn't have been allowed to enter in the first place had there been sufficient border controls.
3: Um, I, I think that there should have been border controls, but as we see from Australia, where uh, I think Perth went into local lo- into a lockdown, that even border controls aren't perfect. So I mean, I think we should have had earlier border controls, and I think it would go go to a long way to help stop this variant. But I don't think we should just say kind of. This wouldn't have happened without them because you know this, they still can get in through kind of contact through security guards and things like that at the hotels. But I think the government have been very good on this. Um, I mean, 101 people, relatively speaking, compared to the high numbers, uh, isn't that much. Um, uh, high numbers of other cases and other that the bit the uh, Kent variant isn't that much. So I think that um, the government is doing quite a good job on this, and I think they've kind of upped their game a bit, uh, which is, is, is good to see.
0: What did you make of the PM's decision to tell his MPs to abstain on Sir Keir Starmer's motion in which he called for uh, all international arrivals to have to quarantine in their hotel?
3: Um, uh, I presume this is for me. Yeah. Um, I think that... Well, I, th- I think that these kind of things are very inflammatory. They usually kind of produce headlines. So I think abstaining is probably better than directly opposing it. And I could see how that things like that would bring up difficulties, especially with uh, like people travelling home for or people travelling for kind of medical emergencies, or uh, and also along the uh, border with Ireland. I think that would also cause issues there as well. So I think it was probably the, the correct move.
0: So in terms of your own personal view, would you be in line with one labor source that told The Times people are absolutely incredulous as to how the country is closed yet our borders are open or would you would you say you're more aligned to Boris Johnson's stance on the issue?
3: Obviously I'm speaking here personally I'm not kind yeah. of representing the party view hence why I've kind of criticized them so far but um, I do think that I'm with the uh, labor kind of person there where I do think oh, I do think they should have been uh, shut down a lot earlier I think if you look at other countries across the world they've done it a lot better than we have and they've kind of had you know, better responses so I do think that that really does um, I do think they could have improved on that and that's definitely an area of the pandemic where afterwards it will be very interesting to see why they haven't kind of done those actions because I think that it's something relatively easy to do um, uh, mm-hmm. that they haven't done
0: Thank you, Joe. Uh, Ben, I mean, on this issue, do you think the government came down pretty hard, uh, pretty decisively on this South African variant and immediately uh, released the postcodes of where people needed to stay indoors and uh, surge testing has been put in place? Is this a, a rare occasion where the government has actually been efficient and decisive in terms of their response?
2: Well look I think this yeah there's certainly been a very encouraging response from the government, um, much better implementation and working with local councils, community groups, and leaders to making to making sure there are kind of track and trace kits to local residents um, and a really quick and important uh, track and trace response um, uh, and i think I think this is really uh, effective um, when tackling this variant, but I think also at the same time, the government still needs to um, still needs to be improving responses and making sure it's acting um, decisively on the science. Um, I think there's a report coming out recently that the kind of sage government advice um, team had recommended kind of that we needed just this, this sort of hotel policy and this kind of quarantine or arrival policy um perhaps much earlier and um, perhaps I think it was two weeks ago and I think the government does need to be acting much more much more quickly on this but yes certainly there has been Um, an encouraging response and i think track and trace um and quick efficient and easy track and trace um the more i think we're seeing that as that comes out across the board um the better we will be able to handle these you know new variants and breakouts i mean in terms of the
0: motion which i spoke about just now with joe uh which sakir has put forward um i mean the government currently has 30 countries on the red list do you think one of the reasons why Keir Starmer is saying that all international arrivals should have to quarantine in a hotel is because there could be cases of this mutant strain in other countries which haven't been detected. And by the time they've been detected, those arrivals would have come in without having to take the necessary uh, quarantine in the hotels. Is that, do you think that's probably what's motivating Sir Keir's stance on this one?
2: yeah look i think it's um i think it is really important to to yeah, look at those factors and the international sources and i think what's really really clear is um you know we've seen a lot of tracing um to communities of, and people who've tested positive for this new kind of south african variant as it's known um that ha- yeah have no link to south africa have no travel links to south africa um and the spread and we really just don't know so i think yeah particularly internationally yeah, I think that is um, that is a key motivator for Keir Starmer putting this on the agenda and really does need to be seriously considered.
0: Okay, thank you, Ben. Uh, James, let's bring you in. I mean, James, we spoke at length about border controls last week as well, um, and I think you you said about how you were now in favour of the controls. In terms of the the surge testing, I mean, do you the the, the fact that there's been confirmed cases? Today in Bristol and Liverpool, do you think the surge testing will be successful? Or do you think it's now just a case of damage limitation?
1: Uh, I think tracking is important. I've always been a major advocate for track and trace, but I'm not necessarily how sure if, how if, there, I'm sorry I'm not necessarily sure how effective it will be because of factors like I mentioned earlier them not really enforcing uh, travel restrictions between different areas so I think unless you begin putting those restrictions in place it's going to spread and it's going to move on I think tracking it is important telling people to isolate is important but you know, you have a symptomatic up to a fortnight delay with COVID, some gaps are going to be slipped. So I think this is more damage mitigation, of anything, which is still a good thing. We should try to mitigate damage. I want to emphasise that, but I don't think this is a solution.
0: OK, uh, so we're going to move on now uh, to uh, vaccine nationalism. Uh, so we'll start off with Joe on this one. So Joe, recently um the EU triggered Article sixteen of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um and for a brief period uh it was reported that they were in were going to impose new export controls on the vaccine. However, these this was revoked um and the EU changed their stance, although there is some discussion that there was a misreporting of uh, the EU's intentions in the news. Uh, what do you think that the implications of the move to block uh, con- to block vaccines into Northern Ireland may have in the future in terms of uh, countries trying to limit uh, vaccines going elsewhere in order to ensure that their own program of vaccination is successful at the expense of other countries getting the vaccine.
3: In some ways, I think this period has been almost weirdly positive because I think the backlash against the EU's decisions has been so much that elected politicians, I think, would fear doing something like that again. I think in in Britain as well, it's... um, Solidified uh, people like I've I've been speaking to lots of people who uh, often voted for you know remain and things like that and it's it's actually kind of made them kind of think that you know it's kind of almost unified the nation in a way that kind of to realise how kind of bad this is um, and I, th- I think it's it's been good to, well it, in some ways it's been positive but obviously I think that um, it's very worrying that the EU would do that especially with not telling Ireland was especially Atrocious, and I do think that it 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 will um, increase support for kind of more nationalist groups in probably the European Union, as they see the kind of ineffectiveness of the EU in procuring vaccines when they're taking it away from the uh, um, take it away from the member states, the, the the ability to do this. So I I do think, yeah, I, I do think this is going to have some. It's a mixed bag, but it will have some negative consequences for the EU definitely.
0: I mean the uh uk have shown a willingness previously to overrule the withdrawal agreement and then they back down on that uh and now the eu's recent a- aggressive move does the, do these uh actions indicate that there is a future risk of the good friday agreement breaking down and uh, not being respected by both sides
3: um I, I don't believe I've heard this before. So please don't quite, Like if it's wrong, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that the border is actually technically mentioned in the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I'm. I'm please correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be. Uh, but, but I do worry that kind of in future times of crisis, this may happen, and with different politicians get in charge and things like that um, it could get to a stage where the borders are closed and that's obviously very very negative for the peace process in Northern Ireland Um, but yeah so I definitely think that this has some negative consequences but I think the reaction to it from all sides and the EU recognising they're wrong for the short term I don't think there is so much of a worry but I think in the long run it Mm. is slightly worrying although I just want to say the Britain's kind of thing against uh with the borders was far less egregious or far more minor than the eu's flagrant flagrant breach if i can speak correctly
0: okay thank you joe i mean let's go to james i mean james uh joe spoke about the good friday agreement and tony blair described the move as very foolish and he spoke about its implications for uh peace and in terms of uh secretarian hostilities sort of flaring up again um what do you think uh, are the implications of how the eu acted and do you think the fact that it reversed its decision indicates that vaccine nationalism isn't going to be a permanent feature of the f- future or is it foreshadowing something that is set to come
1: so i think there's kind of a uh, two Major players looking at this. There's looking at uh, institutions in Northern Ireland and there's looking at the EU as an institution. I think the situation was, I'd call it pretty much entirely a result of bureaucracy grinding its gears, because the entire thing was basically about contract disputes. And the thing about contract disputes is everybody thinks they're right, but I mean, the EU U turned on it within, I think, something like four hours, and we. Pre- Prevaricated on the internal markets bill to the point where we had to ask the House of Lords to vote it down, so we could go again. Uh, but looking at Northern Ireland, I think this hasn't triggered anything that wouldn't have been triggered. Anyway, I think Article 16 would always have to be triggered at some point because there's inevitably going to be something that the EU can't let in or out without compromising the integrity of the EU internal market. And what I think that means is that the border down the Irish Sea was always going to be apparent. You can kind of see the reaction by hardline Unionist this in the recent vandalism of Alliance Party buildings in Northern Ireland. And I think they were going to jump, to be honest, at the slightest excuse. And I'm concerned, definitely, about the possible return of Unionist paramilitaries. That's a terrifying prospect, but I mean, I don't think where this event has fundamentally changed the probabilities of anything happening. I think this was just the spark that got into the powder keg first.
0: Okay. And James, just on a broader point, I mean, the World Health Organization has spoken about how once the UK has vaccinated all the vulnerable groups, um, they said the lower risk groups can wait. Um, And Tony Blair said it would only be likely that we would give over vaccines to uh, developing countries if we had a surplus of vaccines. Uh, What's your stance on this issue in terms of giving the developing world vaccines and when that should come about? Mm
1: Well, we certainly have a duty of care, but the problem is we have two duties of care, one to our own citizens and one to the world. I think the problem of simply saying vaccinate vulnerable groups and then be done is the fact that coronavirus makes its own vulnerable groups. Even a perfectly healthy person catching it has a decent chance of ending up effectively crippled. I mean, we're seeing some of the effects of long COVID, as it's being called, on people. Uh, Leila Moran MP has been investigating it in an APPG, and it's debilitating. So I think we definitely need to protect everyone at least with the first dose, because that's been proven at least to reduce the severity and pretty much obliterate hospitalizations. And so I think that's the key. We get everyone at first dose first, and then we can probably afford to take the pedal off second dosing and give some of our surplus and some of our supply to developing countries who need it. I think that's the right balance to strike personally.
0: Okay, thank you, James. Let's go to Ben. Um, so Ben, would you like to talk about uh, briefly what the EU's recent action in terms of invoking um, Article 16 and then also um, sp- would you like to touch upon when would be the fitting moment to give vaccines develop- to developing countries?
2: Yeah, well I think um, certainly the EU's decision to trigger Article 16 and the protocol um, and try and kind of limit this export of, um, of vaccines is certainly concerning, but I think it's important to note they did um, withdraw this um, within a short matter of hours. And yeah, I'd just like to touch on James's point as well. We can see the kind of bureaucracy uh, and they think this dispute with the, the factories in Brussels um, and the AstraZeneca uh, company that was making this vaccine and the supplying problems there um but yeah i think this really does benefit no one i noticed there's been a lot of in the media a lot of almost kind of um gleeful delight at sort of the eu's kind of unpopularity following this decision i don't think that benefits anyone in the long term i think uh, the importance of collaboration cooperation with our eu friends and partners is absolutely essential um and that's why you know this move to trigger the border um kind of limits experts on the border was so concerning but I'm, I'm really encouraged that i think boris johnson is working with ursula von der Leyen or the, the european leaders to make sure um, getting um this this dispute was resolved because it was really important that it was um and i just like to kind of um just build on this as well um thinking about uh, linking this um particularly um to looking at kind of Giving our surplus vaccines to the developing world. Um, I think it's really important we think about kind of healthcare as perhaps we think about security or, for example, security and terrorism. We 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 know we've got the established concept of you know global global security, global national security. Why don't we think about global health security as well? I think this is also really essential. Um, I think we also need to realise that we we think about this as a national issue and we're keen to you know get all our population vaccinated and make sure, of course, we have a duty of care to our citizens, but I think it's important we realise um, that in this globalised world and the way that we are so interconnected, we really are only as safe as as the weakest countries uh, in this health situation. Um, and whilst yes, I agree, it's, it's right that we make sure our vulnerable are protected with those first jabs, and we have our elderly, perhaps our over 60s, over 70s and all those with these kind of underlying conditions. I think it's only right that working with you know the who um the eu america and other partners we do ensure the rollout of this vaccine i think it would be the greatest tragedy if we see you know the developing world um in africa and other countries who perhaps you know don't have as much money to get their hands on the first supply don't have the resources but ensure that they're equally provided for um, because, yeah, as I say, we are only as really as safe um, in the world because we, we've seen how interconnected this world is, particularly with travel and the way that the virus spreads, and we really do need to think about this. And that's why I do think, um, without willing to just wanting to look like I want to score political points at all, it was slightly concerning, I think, that um, Rishi Sunak um, reduced the budget in his November budget for um, For the international um, kind of aid department, reducing that to 0.5% is a reduction where I really don't think that should have been implemented. I think we do need to see, make sure we've got proper provision and giving proper resources to the developing world and working with our international partners in this because it's a global issue, not just a national issue. And yeah, vaccine nationalism is always really, really worrying.
0: Okay, thank you, Ben. As we're talking about the wider world let's move on to the uk's recent application to the comprehensive and progressive uh, trans-pacific partnership so on this one let's start with uh james uh so james um, what do you make of uh the uk's um desire to join this pact uh, do you think it's going to have big long-term economic benefits or is it going to lead to any, anything in the short run changing in terms of our uh, trade with members of the pact? I mean, it's probably worth noting before you respond that this trust has said that in the future it's going to be Asia-Pacific countries in particular where the big markets are. So how would you respond to what she said in terms of the worth of joining this pact?
1: Well, I think... Liz Truss is wrong to say that that's where our market efforts should be coordinated. Uh, I feel like she's in essence giving up on our neighbors by saying that, which is a bit rude, quite frankly. But first of all, it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The current members you'll see form a nice geographic ring about around the Pacific Ocean we are on the atlantic ocean literally on the other side of the world the cptpp members combined make up eight percent of our exports germany alone 9.9 percent the eu 45 percent uh, in terms of our trade partners, the ones from the CPTPP who make it into the top 20 are Japan at 11th, Canada at 18th, Australia 19th, Singapore 20th, whereas in Europe, Germany 2nd, Netherlands 3rd, France 4th, Ireland 6th, Spain 7th, Belgium 8th, Italy 9th. And if you look at what the CPTPP actually is, it's reduced tariffs, service access, reduced red tape, and standards alignments. It's the building blocks for customs union, all but name. It was made by its designers to mimic the EU because they liked how much power it had. It was designed to be a precursor to a single market. So I think this is just a Patrick job trying to stem the leak in our economy that Brexit has caused because. They know, fundamentally, globalized economic and customs unions are the future of trade, and where political power, leverage, and influence lie on the international stage. They've abandoned the obvious choice. Pride prevents them from joining the EU customs union or single market, not even joining the EU wholesale. And so since they've abandoned the obvious choice, they're intent on settling for second best.
0: Is one of the advantages, James, of joining this uh, pact, which looks like it's only going to have minimal uh, economic uh, benefit in the short run, the prospect that the US might join and therefore you will get the benefits of a a trade deal with the US without having to separately negotiate a bilateral trade deal with them? Would that be only one one of the greater benefits of joining this pact?
1: That is definitely the angle, I think. I mean, Boris Johnson has made no secret of the fact that he wants a trade deal with the US badly. It's not hard to see why. I was listing our exporter, people we export to by numbers. The US is number one on the list. They're probably our closest partner in a lot of respects. But uh, the CPTPP. Would be disrupted at this point by the US joining. I think Biden might try for it. I think it's a lot more likely than not he will since he was Obama's VP and Obama wanted to do it, but it's worth noting the US added a lot of legislation to the original like the precursor agreement to the CPTPP and I. Fundamentally, I don't trust the U.S. in terms of those negotiations in a significant part because of the uh, trade deal they had with Canada and Mexico a while ago, which crippled both of those countries' health services with drug prices. So I think perhaps it's short-sighted to think that the U.S. that choosing the U.S. over the EU is going to give us more than we'll lose. I think the U.S. drives a hard bargain because it can. And I think we are trying effectively to dodge the line and get in before they can make any major conce- force us to make any major concessions. The problem is, I think the U.S. can get the CPTPP to make concessions because the mere withdrawal of the U.S. collapsed the last agreement.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that insight, James. Uh, let's bring in Joe. Joe, what what do you make of the prospect of us? Oh uh, well, looks like a very likely prospect of us joining the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership.
3: I think it's great. Um, I mean, the uh, the with joining a partnership with potential. I don't think yeah, potential that the doesn't. I don't think have, and yeah, they said that this century is going to be the Asian century, and uh, there's lots of uh, uh, going to be lots of things around. The, yeah, lots of partners that can be growing exponentially. I think this is also going to hopefully try to expand um, expand our kind of influence over kind of some of these kind of I- countries, especially kind of there are some countries in there that are I'm quite concerned about. For example, uh, Brunei, with their horrific uh, laws against hom- homosexuality. Hopefully, things like this can change, um, change those kind of laws and try and influence them to be a bit more, to be more kind of uh, tolerant and inclusive. Uh, but I think hopefully it'd be a precursor to other agreements with other parts of the world um for example Central Asia where they have massive potential, massive ex- yeah. And you know just like Uzbekistan at the moment are go yeah, Uzbekistan's economy will be growing this year, which is crazy when you think about the losses that we're having. And I think hopefully this will be kind of just a start for where you new know, where we can continue in growing our global growth. And I do think that maybe in the short run it might not be massively significant. But I think in the long run, hopefully it'll be um really good and really significant and we can kind of really kind of expand our global influence.
0: Okay, thank you for that, Joe. Uh, I mean, Joe, how would you respond to what James has said about how, um, you know, it would actually, it's slightly rude for what Liz Truss has said about how these are the countries where the big markets are going to be?
3: I I think that, um, I think that, Germany and France are declining in power and in kind of, you see Germany's economic growth before the pandemic was crawling. I think they were in a a recession even before the pandemic started. And although they'll remain big markets, I think the the markets that will have the most growth will be the ones in Asia. And I think that uh, I I wouldn't say it was rude at all to say that because I don't think we'll see Germany going at 11, 12% anytime soon. So I, th- I think that, yeah, and these countries have huge populations that we can really kind of, that our British goods can really go and that they want British goods and they can go and benefit these countries.
0: OK, thank you, Joe. Uh Ben, would you like to come in and what do you make of what James and Joe have said, bearing in mind that they produce very different sorts of an analysis of whether this is a good good development in terms of the UK uh, potentially joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership?
2: Well, yeah, I think um, I'd, I'd agree with both to some extent. Um, I think certainly uh, we've seen, you know, the Conservative government has post Brexit has really been trying to trumpet this brand of global Britain, um, expanding, you know, its trade and its influence um, across the world in Asia in the growing economies. Um, yeah I think um yeah Joe's right to particularly say i think um the influence um and uh, yeah, I think the real great potential of these Asian economies um uh, but equally, I would agree with James that I do still think yeah we need um need to enjoy make sure we're enjoying close ties um, and I think primarily still in the lot, in the short term we need to have the e u as one of our primary trading partners. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think in the long term, I would say I would advocate a more limited trade deal would certainly um, be good for Britain. But I think in this kind of rush to sign new trade deals that we've seen Liz Trust the uh, um, international trade secretary embark on, um, I think the real worry, as Joe I think has picked up on this is the fact that yes, there is you know we can sign trade deals and perhaps that will have an influence on these countries, but how much are we actually using the prospect of a trade deal, uh, I think, to really properly influence these countries for the better. I think it's important to note that Britain is one of the most, world's largest economies, and um, really needs to be using its influence better um, in negotiating these trade deals to say, look, here we go, here's your trade, here's a trade deal, we're very keen to do business with you, but we need to see proper changes first. Now, that might not be a view that's um, widely held, but I think um, we all want, you know, to expand our trade and our horizons, but we need to make sure that we are engaging responsibly first. I don't, I don't think there's kind of anyone, and even on the conservative side of the benches, we've seen Ian Duncan Smith, um, among others, tabling concern at uh, kind of uh, are rushed into trade deals without perhaps looking at, you know, as their accusations, is there judicial. Um charges of genocide are there are other concerns, so we need to think about this um particularly um I think yeah in the long term, the things that really really would need to be um protected and i 'd be really concerned about would be i think particularly food standards you know chlor- chlorinated chicken was the headline and it 's become somewhat ridiculed by now, but there are serious kind of concerns behind that about the quality of meat, the quality of dairy products. Um, And also health, we need to make sure that our health service is protected um, and we make sure, yeah, that we're not opening this up to contracts or inappropriate kind of uh, financial speculation on these contracts and just a general no compromise on standards and on environmental and labour protections. We need to be particularly concerned and hawkish about these things um, when we are engaging in these deals and making sure that we are, you know, we are looking after our domestic industries um and making sure that uh, our consumer standards and particularly um with you know the the great challenge of the age um the great challenge of tackling climate change we are making sure we have these commitments and i think joe biden as well particularly um we've seen that you know in engaging with a, a potentially a new trade deal or joining um this partnership or joining a new trade deal with the us that's that's particularly joe biden's priorities as well he knows Amongst about like more than anyone, the importance of climate change and our kind of global climate commitments. Um, so I think these would be the really important things to th- to think about. But yes, I'd agree. Um, it's it's really exciting. We have the opportunity to trade with other nations, but we do need to make sure we do this responsibly and use our influence for good because it can be a great a great source of uh good in the world as a global leader. And I think we are a global leader.
0: Okay, thank you, Ben. Um. Let's now start off with Joe on the final issue. And we're going to talk about now about the coal mine, which the government approved in Cumbria. Um, the coal mine is set to, uh, is costed uh, around £165 million. And um, in terms of the impact of the mine, uh, the government's own... The advisers have said that it is expected to increase UK's emissions by zero point four megatons of CO two per year. Joe, does this oh uh, this approval of the mine show that the government really isn't serious about its uh, the its, its targets that it's set out for tackling climate change?
3: Um, I'm not sure the, it shows that the government aren't serious. I'm not sure why they're doing it. It's, it seems like a bit of a PR own goal to me. If, Especially in the year that we have COP26, to go and open a coal mine is a bit... I'm not sure what the kind of point of it is. Um, but I do think the government is committed. I think that, you know, especially with trade deals around the world as well, that will also help with kind of you know, selling some of our very green products and some of the brilliant products we make that are kind of carbon neutral and things like that around the world i think that'd be really good so i and yeah there was the government has done really some really good things on this especially with i think there was a long stretch of last year where uh, the uh, all the power that we had was uh, there was no there was no fossil fuels involved, which is really really positive. And it, this news story, for some reason, I don't know why they've done it, but it kind of overrides some of those good news stories and kind of is a bit of a PR yeah definitely a bit of a PR own goal I think.
0: I mean, Joe, advocates of the mine have pointed to the creation of 500 direct jobs and 2,000 more in the supply chain, and have insisted that. The coke that is being made from the mines um, is is going towards steel, which is required for infrastructure. Which, if, if 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 the coke wasn't made at home, then the steel would have to be imported from places like China and Russia, which could be potentially more harmful to the environment. So, is is this just a zero sum game where because the government because there hasn't been necess- there hasn't been investment from previous governments and this government into uh, into making steel in a low carbon way, it's an own goal. Whichever decision you make,
3: I do have some sympathy with that view. And obviously, uh, well, British steel is kind of is not only probably more environmentally friendly. You don't have to ship it you know, halfway around the world to use it, but also it's higher quality as well than the Chinese products that kind of flooded our markets. So um, I think that, though that there can be jobs made in other ways, um, although jobs are great, (laughs) but I think there could be other measures of doing it: lowering taxes, lowering tariffs, the international trade deals that we're doing could all really help to spur jobs. So I'm not sure those kind of 500 jobs, although to those people they'll be really important. I'm not sure for the wider economy that actually that going to going to be that significant if we if the government. Uh, takes the correct policies in job creation.
0: Okay, thank you, Joe. Let's go to Ben. Ben, what do you make of this coal mine um, in Cumbria? I mean, it, it's it go, it's not a very good look, is it? When we have got COP twenty six, as Joe has mentioned. Uh, well, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, Joe talks about a PR disaster, and I would I would more say it's probably a moral disaster. I think. Um, yeah, Joe's mentioned absolutely right to mention COP twenty six. Um, the conference in Glasgow at the end of the year, um, and uh, kind of the real importance, and I think pressing importance, is not like world leaders or local government and national government haven't been warned. Um, I must note that of course, yeah, this was a local decision taken by local Cumbrian councillors, um, but that's not to say that Robert Genrick, who is the community secretary, um, was asked to intervene um, and refused and said it was a local issue that didn't kind of didn't have implications across the country. I think it's very clear that you know our national commitments tackling climate change is really important. I don't think this this particularly shows well that the government is um, serious about climate change in our day and age. Um, perhaps this is what was meant um, when the government I think gave a slightly vague target of becoming net zero, um, having net zero carbon emissions by twenty fifty. Um, I think particularly we really do need to be have much better investment in renewables in wind, solar and green energy and, you know, alternative renewable energy and renewable sources of energy um, for making steel and just a complete reform of the process. Um, I think, yeah, this is, this is so important. And I think the sort of lack of action on this really um, does, doesn't bode particularly well. Um, and I think the more we you know, we, we have more investment in these industries, whether that incentivisation, um, you know, more kind of local community interest, um, and the more we make sure we're providing, providing jobs. Of course, we need to provide, we need to providing jobs, for, I think a green new deal that is sustainable, um, that is forward thinking and building, you know, the industries of the future and building a coal mine, which perhaps. Um, you know, it's inefficient. It might be shut down um, in a few years. Building this kind of, you know, inefficient technology that's gonna need to be kind of upgraded, I think very relatively soon, isn't, um, you know, isn't an efficient use um, of money. Um, and the government did need to intervene to make sure that we do have energy sources in a healthy, flourishing end- in energy industry in Cumbria, but one that is, you know, kind of concurrent with, you know, our national, our national goals and our, and our targets.
0: I mean Ben you you made a good point by touching upon the fact that this was a decision made by the local council and it had support from labor uh liberal and conservative councillors um do you think that the this raises an important issue in terms of should the de- these sort of de- decisions be made by local councillors who this 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 the opening of this the mine itself is very popular with those living in the area, so it'd be political suicide for them not to uh, agree to uh, give their support to this project. Do you think it raises the the problem um, the problem of having the people making these sort of decisions about uh, the opening of mines in the hands of those in the local council rather than in the national government?
2: Um well yeah, I think uh, the key issue here I think is national intervention. Um yeah, of course I think it's important that um, you know, the councillors have a say and the councillors are able to vote through, you know, good investments and, and good proposals with jobs. Um but I just like to highlight I think there is a double standard where often you have projects where there is complete opposition from the local community to a particular, you know, fracking um fracking project. Um, and yeah you see the government um, yeah just just keen to intervene and almost overrule um, local community standards but when you know when it's kind of when it's uh, something like a coal mine um, it has less interest so i would just question the government's kind of priorities and inconsistencies of, it, of intervention i think the government does need to intervene far more yeah just to ensure and does need to work with local councillors. and when you see far more consultation and collaboration I don't think it's a case of government versus local government. I think we need to see the government working together with local government to ensure that they're able to, you know, put forward these politically popular proposals, but also that these proposals are, you know, are green, are investing in the future rather than investing in the past. Um, and I think this is really, really essential.
0: Thank you, Ben. Let's go now to James. James, what do you uh, I mean Ben spoken at length about it, and Joe also made some uh, he touched upon sort of the the aspect of getting it from abroad what What do you make of uh this whole coal mine and whether it could have been avoided if there'd been national intervention, for example?
1: I mean it could have been avoided on infrastructure to be honest, a lot of it relies on being done at a national level. And I think sometimes you do need to override local governments because local governments have very narrow priorities, which tend to revolve around getting themselves re elected and doing what's locally popular. But in terms of things like this or house building, you do need to be willing to take a national stance. And setting up a new coal mine is just, I think it's a vile proposition. It'll do damage, it should have deterred it. Uh, And I'm slightly confused, to be honest, because it was the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher who first deemed British coal mining unprofitable, and now they're starting it back up again. Uh, So I think, does this mean Margaret Thatcher just did it for spite, or was she right? And does that mean Boris Johnson is wrong? I think this is a good practical example of how the Conservative Party have changed by their assimilation of UKIP. But notwithstanding, there's a massive reputational damage. It's the cop26 situation it is just will be a laughing stock i sometimes wonder if the prime minister just has made a game out of destroying the country's reputation but you mentioned importing and importing coke uh, for steel uh, i mean british steel has been on the down for years now british steel the like company has been bought up by china British manufacturing for now is pretty much dead or dying. The Conservatives killed it under Thatcher and have been trying to pretend it has life left in it ever since. If you want manufacturing back, We need to engage in what's called the Green Industrial Revolution. Lib Dem leader Ed Davey has used it. He campaigned heavily on his leadership campaign. Green MP Caroline Lucas obviously deserves a lot of credit. Things like the Cornwall Lithium mine for battery technology, decarbonizing the economy, solar panels on houses. If you want manufacturing, do that. Otherwise, except for a service-based economy. But I think this limping with regards to the coal mine is humiliating, and I think it's stretching out a managed decline that we don't need, and it's going to do damage to the world in the meantime
0: okay thank you james um so i'd like to thank all my guests uh, ben joe and james for coming on this evening and for talking about a wide range of topics on the environment to uh post-brexit trade negotiations and covid19 uh, so thank you to all of you for coming on and uh, i look forward to uh to meeting the next representatives next week and all that is left for me to do is say have a good evening and good night thank you